I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. David, we've been talking about a lot of topics on this show that point towards systemic existential crises in some situations. Environmental collapse, financial systems that are vulnerable, and political systems that exploit people, among other things. But many people will point out that, hey, despite all the problems that we have today, the world has always been a tough place to live in. There's always been issues, there's always been conflict, and we now live, thanks to technology, thanks to economic growth, we now live in the best time. We have the greatest security, we have the best health, we have the greatest convenience in terms of travel, infrastructure. This is clearly the best time to be alive. So for all the complaining that we do here on Ashes Ashes, ultimately, that's all it is. It's just complaining, and the world is still progressing. It's still getting better, and we have a lot to look forward to in the future. You know, Daniel, for once, I'm going to say that I agree with you. For some people, for a lot of people, that's absolutely true. This really is the best of times. But like the famous Charles Dickens book, that's not all the story. And it hides what life is like for a vast majority of the people on Earth. And for them, this is the worst of times. It's a tale of two worlds, the best and the worst, coming together. And I think we need to look at these two worlds and try to make sense of why that is. Why we have one world that for them is the best of times and another world that is the worst of times. And maybe ask the question, David, is this an equal dichotomy here? Do we have half the population experiencing the best of times and half the population experiencing the worst? Or is there some kind of asymmetry going on here in the way that people perceive quality of life? These are excellent questions and things that we'll spend the next hour or so exploring. So let's dig in. And one of the arguments that someone might bring up to point out that we are living in the best of times is the modern convenience and technology that we experience. I've actually heard a psychologist say, hey, the average American not only lives better than an ancient king, the average American actually lives like an ancient demigod because we have these cell phones that can transmit communication halfway around the world because we can hop on an airplane and fly to anywhere we want in just a few hours, something that not even the kings of old could do. And of course, we have these amazing porcelain seats, this modern plumbing infrastructure that has given us such convenience that no one in our history ever got to experience. So what do you think about that, David? Are we living like demigods in today's society? Well, if you're rich enough, you are, uh, without a doubt. But the reality is, is most of the world and even most Americans don't have enough money for a lot of these luxuries you mentioned. So something that comes up a lot, the ability to fly around, to easily travel anywhere in the world. Well, here in the United States, one of the richest nations on planet Earth per capita, somewhere between 50 and 60% of people don't fly every year, mostly because they can't afford it. That's a staggering number of people who can't afford this very basic component of this fantastically technologically enabled bit of modern life. And more than that, we spend so much of our time working. The 40-hour work week, for many people, it's 50, 60, 70 hours every single week that they devote to their job in order to have a place to live, in order to be able to afford food. Well, this is a departure from almost all of human history where we had, in comparison, tons of free time. And we had this sort of perception about the past that people used to have to work constantly. 
that they were out in the field slaving away all day, that they were out gathering food all day, that they were out hunting, or they were tending their fields all day long. And it's only in modern times where we have the convenience of stopping by a grocery store or driving to wherever we're going that we have the ability to finally enjoy free time. Don't forget that while those ancient people were slaving away trying to survive on berries, nuts, and hunting, they were at the same time trying to fend off all those saber-toothed tigers just jumping at their throats constantly trying to kill them. Exactly. This is the kind of ridiculous mental picture that we built up because of history textbooks and also a lot of popular media that have built this sort of meme. But in reality, we work now more than any other time in human history. The average hunter-gatherer, in order to provide everything they needed in their life, that's their food, that's their water, that's their shelter, worked on average 15 to 20 hours a week to have all their needs met. Let that sink in for just a moment. That's less time than I spend on Ashes Ashes, David. Yeah, exactly. What are we doing here? This, <laughs> this is crazy. And in the recent agricultural past in medieval Europe or other places, for much of the year outside of harvest season, people also only worked 20 to 30 hours a week and spent the rest of their time with their friends, with community, living social lives and enjoying their free time. The conception of work to survive is relatively a recent development in history and has stolen from us the ability to enjoy life that has been the human experience up until the past century or two. But maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Well, David, I think you touched on a really important aspect of quality of life when you mentioned spending time with your friends, spending time with your community, relaxing, enjoying life, doing the things you want to do as opposed to the things you have to do. Because the way we think about quality of life has kind of been transformed into exclusive economic vocabulary. The only way we think about poverty worldwide is in terms of dollar amounts, right? And so I think something that we need to consider when we think about the quality of someone's life is not just these external goods, these cell phones, the plumbing infrastructure that we can enjoy, but rather the relationship that we have with the world. The relationship we have with society and the people around us, because these might be better indicators of well-being than something as simple as just economic metrics. But even when we are looking at pure economic metrics, David, if what you're saying is true, that we're working more than we ever have before, well, that raises questions in my mind about the progress that we've experienced. And you know, we did suggest in our fashion episode that a better way of looking at progress than economic metrics in our modern world might be to examine how the weakest links in our society are impacted, from the very local ecology and the land that we depend on to the poorest people among us. So why don't we look at those who experience the greatest level of poverty in our society to get a sense of how they're impacted by this economic progress. Yeah, okay, Daniel, let's look at poverty and ask ourselves this question. How does the progress of our economy, by typical standards that is, correlate with poverty, with quality of life, and the ability for people to rise above their situation? It's an important question because if we in the United States are the supposed global leader of freedom, of equality, and more importantly, the leaders of a global economic model that aims to raise people out of poverty through growth, then we should expect that that economic growth we've experienced here will correlate with a favorable trend in poverty. And if there's a contradiction between the growth of our economy and the state of poverty and human suffering, well, we need to ask why that is. To what degree our economy ignores human suffering and maybe even to what extent does the modern economy benefit from and perpetuate these cycles of poverty? This is a topic we want to spend 
a lot of time delving into. Not just, I mean, we do say a lot on the show, hey, we're going to explore this topic in depth in another episode, but this is something that goes beyond just another episode. This is something we're considering maybe even doing like a spinoff program to go in depth in how these forces work to affect people in poverty. It's a big topic. It's something we're really excited to go into in the future. But let's take a snapshot here in the context of this episode. So when you think about poverty around the world, the United States is typically not the first thing that comes to mind. But in reality, poverty in the United States has reached shocking levels. In fact, according to Credit Suisse, an investment bank out of Switzerland, 20 to 50 million of the world's poorest adults are Americans. And that may be surprising to many because we have been trained to believe that poverty is a dollar figure. By international economic institutions, for example, extreme poverty means you're making less than $2 a day. And so I guess when you consider that even the poorest Americans can get a job at Walmart and make $7 an hour or whatever it is, we just assume that Americans are better off than the poor around the world. But it turns out that's not true. Because you can't measure poverty in just the amount of dollars coming in each day. You can make $7 an hour and still have a cost of living that exceeds your income. You can make $7 an hour and be unable to pay your medical bills, to have crippling debt, to lack any form of safety net, whether in the form of government programs or just a basic community around you. You can make $7 an hour and still lack any hope for retirement. And you can suffer mental and physical distress as a result of all the anxiety that comes along with that. And Daniel, you mentioned one thing there, the $2 a day, give or take, measure, which is the the IMF, the World Bank, their measure of extreme poverty. And one of the most important measures for them of the quantitative improvement that the global economy, that globalism, that capitalism has had on increasing the well-being of people all around the world, right? Right. And we assume that every American household obviously is going to be making more than $2 a day because how can you live in the United States on $60 a month? That's not really possible. Yeah. No, because you got rent, you've got food. Most places in America, the only way to travel around is by car. Here in New York, the subway one way takes $2.75. That already blows your entire daily budget just to go somewhere in one direction. But it turns out that that extreme poverty level is not uh, foreign to people in the United States. And in fact, 1.5 million households out of the 120 million households in the United States live below this $2 a day poverty line. That's one out of every 90 households. Extreme poverty is here in the United States. It's just hidden from sight. Wait, you're saying that there's over a million households that are living off less than $2 a day in the United States? 1.5 million households. But dollars per day isn't the only measurement of quality of life. Some people have tried to get past the problem of quantifying how well off you are based solely on income and instead developed something called the well-being index, which takes a lot of different measurements and creates a map more or less of is somebody's life good or is it bad? This was developed by Gallup, the very prestigious polling company. They release this every year and it keeps track of how people in different states, well, how their lives are, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's improving, how much better or worse it's getting. And the score is derived from interviewing 160,000 Americans and they look at things like purpose, their social situation, their financial situation, what community they're in, as well as their physical health. The things that come together to define a good or bad life. Well, in 2017, For the first time, 21 states saw their well-being scores drop. And as a first in nine years of tracking this score, no state at all saw any improvement. 
The index began in 2008, so right at the peak of the financial crisis, when things were bad. And 2017 was the worst decline recorded thus far. What this means is that despite the economy booming, the stock market exploding, in terms of day-to-day experience, people are worrying more. They have less energy and greater physical pain. People lack others in their lives who encourage them and in whom they can trust. In fact, millennials now, they're the loneliest generation ever recorded by pollsters. People have less hope for their own future and they experience increased depression and mental health problems. I was lonely before I met you, David. (laughs) I'm I'm glad I can fill the void in your heart, Daniel. (laughs) But all this has direct economic impacts in addition beyond this, the quality of people's lives. And again, it's weird that we have to even discuss it in this context, but research shows that these well-being metrics correlate strongly with employees missing work, employee productivity and healthcare costs. But like I said, we'll get into this more depth later on this episode. But until then, for a morbid example of this very decline, life expectancy in the United States has been going down for the past three years, something we haven't seen in decades. And one of the big things impacting people's well-being is their financial situation. One third of Americans have no savings at all. 40% of households could not absorb a $2,000 emergency. 40% of people of retirement age have less than $10,000 saved for their retirement. And 56% of Americans have incomes that are outpaced by the rising cost of living. David, let me ask you a question. If you're making less money than it costs you to live, what's one way that you might be able to make up that difference? Well, I'm assuming at this point, I'm already working as much as I can. So that really leaves me one decent legal option. And I guess that is, it's time to take out a loan. That's right. And that's what a lot of people have done. And it may be easy to dismiss those with debt as being bad managers of money. You know, we can say, oh, it's their fault. They shouldn't buy TVs they can't afford. But you're right, David. The reality is that for so many people, debt has become necessary just to survive. In terms of healthcare cost alone, for example, 20% of the entire country has unpaid medical debts in the hands of debt collectors. And so this aspect of how this private debt that so many Americans have winds up in the hands of debt collectors is something I think we should focus on real quick because it's such a shocking, it's such an important component of how this poverty plays out in our society and how it perpetuates itself. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're either in some form of debt or you know someone who is. And in the United States, the ACLU found that not only are many people in debt, But that debt is being used to threaten people with jail, to actually throw people in jail, and otherwise extort them, often illegally, often for more money than they are in debt for, and always with the help of judges and prosecutors. So let's talk about the debt situation. One third of U.S. adults, or over 75 million people, have debt that has been transferred or sold to a private debt collection company. And these collection companies are filing millions of lawsuits a year to force people to pay through the threat of jail. And there's so much debt out there, Daniel. I don't want to list a bunch of numbers and stuff at you, but I want to understand conceptually just all the different types of debt that we can carry. Of course, the most common and the greatest amount of debt that Americans have is mortgage debt. Um, A lot of people we're talking about here, though, aren't wealthy enough to even get a mortgage in the first place, but that is the majority of American debt. But a lot of it is credit card debt. There's a lot of student debt, auto loan payments. 
Medical debt is a huge portion of this. Payday loans, especially as you get lower down in the poverty cycle, become a major component of this debt. Almost everything in the United States is financed by debt. Most of the economic recovery that we've seen has been built on debt, on cheap money, both at the institutional level, as well as all the way down to individuals maxing out their credit cards. And that's why we had just hit the highest amount of debt per Americans ever recorded, much more than before the 2008 crisis. And a lot of that is credit card debt, which is at the highest levels in all of history. Well, even more than that, David, is the fact that these debt collectors have found a way to take advantage of any situation in which a person might owe money, including something as little as a utility bill that someone forgot to pay. Well, utility companies will sell that obligation to a debt collector for less than the amount that is owed. That debt collector will then go out and try to collect that money off that person. So Yes, we're financing everything, but also we have bills. And when those bills go unpaid, there's someone there who's willing to collect. And what's so alarming about this process of using this debt to throw someone in jail is that it's not actually even legal, at least not in the United States. Congress abolished debtor's prison in 1833. So what's more alarming is the fact that this process isn't possible without the willful and the aggressive assistance of the court system. Many state courts have been turned effectively into collector's courts, debt collection lawsuits being the majority of cases, and with judges churning through hundreds of cases each day, not even bothering to verify that what the debt collectors claim about the amount that a person owes is even true. We talk a lot about the the school to prison pipeline or the prison industrial complex, but this debt system, the the process of churning out fines and fees over just little, oftentimes stupid things, which is something we'll discuss in the future, and making money off of it, both at the the judicial level for the the city, for the municipality, as well as for these debt collectors, has become a huge enormous industry by itself. And people have gotten frustrated about this. A lot of us that don't end up in court all the time over these stupid little fines and fees that just keep adding up, uh, we don't realize how big of a problem this is because we aren't the communities affected by this. But if you remember a few years ago, the Ferguson riots, uh, it was kicked off by a police shooting. But a lot of that frustration that led to people going out there and venting their anger on buildings, on business owners, um, on the police is because they were just constantly attacked by and saddled by these enormous debts from the municipality, finding them over every little thing they could and catching them in a continuous cycle of And David, that's almost a separate issue in of itself is the way that fines get levied on poor people by municipalities for really ridiculous things. There's a whole system of code enforcement and fines that we want to definitely explore in depth. NYPD makes over a billion dollars a year from these fines. But let's get into how this process of debt collection in terms of the role that private debt collectors play in this process, because it's really shocking. So the process goes something like this. A private company, a debt collector, files a lawsuit against someone for money owed on, let's say, a school textbook or an unpaid water bill or maybe an ambulance fee that someone incurred a couple years ago. Well, the person in debt has no idea they have been sued because these companies have no incentive to provide them notice. And in 95% of these lawsuits, the judge will give the collector what they ask for almost automatically. And sometimes what the collector is asking for is authorization for a sheriff to go out and seize the debtor's car, maybe put a lien on their house, or maybe garnish their wages. But these collectors have figured out an even more effective way to make money, mostly from poor people who otherwise don't have the assets to seize and little to no income to garnish. And that's by throwing them in jail. 
But okay, one second, Danny. You mentioned a minute ago that debtor's prison was abolished, that this is something that we cannot have in the United States, that it was banned. I remember learning that in elementary school. Yeah. And it is true that the Supreme Court ruled on a case a few decades ago that kind of made it ambiguous about what municipalities could do. But right now, David, in every jurisdiction in the United States, it is illegal to put someone in jail for debt. But the way a court gets around this is kind of through a technicality. They basically say, well, we're not jailing them for not paying their debt. We're jailing them for failing to do what we ordered them to do. And what they ordered them to do could be pay the court-ordered installment plan or show up for an examination they never received notice for. It's a gross technicality that courts get away with because these debtors, they have no defense. They are often too poor to afford an attorney. No attorney is given to them, even though that is a basic component of our judicial system, is the right to legal defense. And this process has become so routine in certain areas that judges just automatically issue arrest warrants simply because collectors ask them to. And these collectors, they're using the threat of jail intentionally because they know it's the most effective way to scare someone into paying. In fact, some companies will go out of their way to postpone or reschedule hearings if a defendant actually shows up. They'll keep postponing it until they finally miss a hearing so that it's easier for them to get an arrest warrant. They can say, hey, judge, they didn't show up. Give us a warrant for their arrest. And why do these companies want these debtors arrested? Well, in the first place, it's easier to extract money from them. Oftentimes, the judges will set bail equal to the amount to be collected. And when it gets paid, they'll hand the money over to the debt collector. Okay, you talked a lot about what the debt collectors are getting out of this, but why is the court participating in this process? It seems like it goes against whatever judicial or fairness or whatever ethics the court is supposed to uphold. Well, in one of the most deplorable aspects of this system, the courts themselves are actually making money off this. And that's through private contracts that district attorney offices have with debt collectors all over the country to extract money from people who have written a check that's bounced. So it is a criminal offense to intentionally write a bad check. It's fraud, but it has to be over a certain dollar amount and you have to be able to prove criminal intent. Despite this, district attorneys have signed contracts with private companies that allow them to send letters with an official DA seal to anyone that has bounced a check, threatening criminal prosecution when no criminal intent has been shown, and even when the check amount was under the criminal amount. In fact, one attorney documented over 10,000 checks, less than $10 that people received letters for, threatening them with jail. But again, I mean, how are the courts profiting off of this? Oh yeah, well, as part of these contracts with the district attorney, debt collectors are allowed to attach exorbitant fees on top of the debt owed, which is then funneled back to the court system once it's paid. For example, there was a woman who bounced a check for $40 at Goodwill. She was buying clothing for her children. And because of a banking mix-up, the check was bounced. Well, she received a letter telling her that she would need to pay the $40 plus an additional $185 in fees. And the letter implied that she would be criminally charged and go to jail if she did not do so within 10 days. And these fees eventually ballooned to $220, meaning that she paid over six times the amount the check was bounced for. And if that's not bad enough, David, someone else paid $444 to a private company for bouncing a check under $4. And an elderly woman living off social security of $800 a month 
stopped taking her medication because she believed if she didn't pay the fees, she'd go to jail. Maybe we don't need to go too much in depth in this topic. The ACLU wrote a long report on this. It's amazing reading. You should really check it out. We'll reference it on the website. And it doesn't take much to imagine how someone living paycheck to paycheck, trying to survive, can be pushed over the edge through a system like this that is essentially preying on people's vulnerability to extract money from them in a very illegal and unfair way. Again, I know I said we wouldn't go in depth anymore on this topic, but I mean, there are even companies that as part of the system have illegally dressed their agents in law enforcement uniforms. So posing as officers, they've even set up fake courtrooms and office buildings. So they'll get these debtors to come to what is essentially a fake hearing with fake police officers to get them to sign installment plans for debts that they'll never be able to repay. It is a dark and it is a dirty underground business that is happening all over the country that people need to be aware of. And I want to cut straight to the chase here and not mince any words. If you are involved in this industry, if you work in this debt collection industry, fuck you. You're a piece of shit. And fuck you. Well said, David. (laughs) Well said. But Daniel, uh, you mentioned debtor's prison has been banned. Um, And of course, this is technicality version of debtor's prison. But uh, I don't know. It sounds like the world's a better place than it used to be, even though maybe more people are being persecuted by this horrible practice than ever before. David, I know you're joking, but honestly, you're kind of onto something because so much of what we think of as progress in terms of social issues like inequality, like discrimination have not actually gone away. They've just been removed from what is visible. And one of those is inequality. That's right. Inequality is one of the major hot button issues of today, especially in the United States, where it's worse than just about almost anywhere else on the planet. Professor of economics at MIT describes a trend in America of a vanishing middle class, leaving in its wake a great divide between what he calls two countries within one, the best of times, the worst of times. Something that many people point to as a characteristic of poor and developing nations. So what are those two countries? Well, in short, on one hand, it's a very rich country with tons of resources, opportunities, they shield from taxes. And uh, on the other hand, it's a large, poor country where people live in functional slavery, have no say in public policy, and are kept that way through social control practices like mass incarceration. They're denied higher wages for the benefit of the wealthy. And the American dream of social and economic mobility is never within grasp. The disparity is being felt, of course, among millennials trying to work, marginal races trying to find opportunity, and older generations trying to retire. Millennials, for example, living in the US, the UK, and Japan are among the first generation to be worse off economically than the previous. Wages have fallen 43% relative to their parents. They have more student debt than ever before in history, and they're competing for jobs with rising automation and baby boomers who can't afford to retire. And because of this rising inequality, upward mobility has plummeted. New research by economists at Stanford, Harvard, and UC Berkeley looked at data across generations, and they found that 50% of all children born in the 80s earn less than their parents at the same age. And today, that number has risen to 64%. For the poorest in the country, a quarter earn less than the parents, and for the richest cohort, 82% earn less. And the biggest drops in that mobility, the ability to rise above the economic cohort that you were born into, well, this mobility is dropping the most within the middle class. But there's an even starker reality, and that's the way that this plays out among skin color or race. Because this is another thing we hear about the progress of the modern world. Discrimination used to be bad, but now it's better. 
But is that really true? That same research group from Stanford, Harvard, and UC Berkeley discovered that for white children born in the lowest fifth of the economic spectrum, the chance of a white child reaching the top fifth of Americans in terms of income is four times greater than a black child in the same poor cohort. But more than that, for white children born in the upper fifth wealthiest cohort of the United States, they were five times as likely to stay there than fall to the bottom. Now, what do you think the chance was for blacks, David? So a black child born to a family in the top 20% of Americans, what's the chance that child will grow up to stay right where they are? What do you think that chance is, David? Uh, let me think about this for a second. For whites, you're five times as likely to stay in the rich cohort than fall down to the bottom. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's one to one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sweet. Flip a coin. That's the chance. You can be born as a black child in the wealthiest part of America, and there's a 50% chance that as you grow up, you're going to wind up in the very poorest. How's that for economic opportunity? How's that for the American dream? And you might be tempted to say, well, hold on now. Black children are more likely to have only a single parent. They're more likely to grow up in a less educated family with less money and connections. And even in different neighborhoods, as tragic as that might be, that's the reality. So, of course, they have less opportunity. But this research controlled for that and found that it actually doesn't matter. When you compare families with the same levels of wealth, the same levels of education, family structure, and even those that live in the exact same neighborhoods, blacks still have significantly smaller incomes when they grow up compared to their white counterparts. But seriously, if anyone has any doubt about the state of racial inequality and discrimination in America, go read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. You'll see that not only did segregation not go away, it is arguably worse than it was when it was legal. Legal to prevent someone from coming into your restaurant based on the color of their skin. The realities faced by the marginal classes in American society is honestly beyond comprehension, and we're not going to be able to do it justice in this episode right now. But as we've established, it's not getting better. Okay, that's a lot to process right now, but there's still much more that we want to touch on in this episode. Again, this is why this episode has to be a snapshot, because there are just so many angles of tragedy going on in our world right now that just to dwell on one of them does an injustice to the entire picture. And that's what we're really trying to explore here in this episode today. So let's jump ahead to how this economic inequality, how these economic problems also impact our health. Because as we are also led to believe, our modern world is healthier and more medically advanced than ever before. And this is true by a lot of metrics. Infant mortality, the life expectancy, at least up until the past few years. By many metrics, we are living longer and we are living healthier, at least in the broad picture. But when you start looking closer at it, that narrative starts to fall apart. Especially considering that where you fall on the economic spectrum has a big impact on your health. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looked at 4,600 people between the years 2000 and 2012, and they found that after the Great Recession, there were significant increases in blood pressure and glucose levels among the populations, mostly among young adults that were still in the labor force and also older homeowners who saw their housing values deteriorate, and along with that, their financial security. And the largest effects could be seen among individuals who had been on medication prior to the recession because medication use and treatment plummeted after the crisis, likely due to exorbitant healthcare costs. 
And as you'll remember, blood pressure and glucose are both big contributors to heart disease. One of the main chronic diseases the national health budget is suffering to try and address right now. But this wasn't the only study done after the recession that tried to look at the health effects associated with what we consider to be purely an economic event. A 2017 literature review paper published in Current Epidemiology Reports looked at multiple comprehensive studies and found that the recession had led to an 11% decline in the total fertility rate in the U.S., most likely due to young people postponing having children because they just can't afford it. Uh, For those that did have children, the recession had negative impacts on birth and child health. Even the announcement of mass layoffs was enough to lead significantly to a decline in birth weight. The children who joined school lunch programs because of declining family income had a higher prevalence of cavities in their teeth. That one stands out to me a little bit because... I mean, what does that say about our school lunch programs, that they're that unhealthy that children are getting cavities when they switch to it? Well, anybody who grew up and went to public school knows that (laughs) the lunch programs have never been uh, quality. Yeah, but that chocolate milk was good. Yeah, that's cavity milk. And nearly all studies that looked at the physical health effects of the downturn found a decline in health due to a number of factors, including rising disabilities, reports of physical ailments, and a marked rise in diabetes. Studies examining mortality found that in Europe, the impacts were less severe for countries that spent more on social services relative to those countries that spent less. 42 studies that examined mental health were reviewed and showed an increase in psychological distress in both the U.S. and Europe, which impacted marginal populations like Hispanics and Blacks the most. And these trends were more severe in the U.S., which lacks many of the safety net programs that Europe has. And of course, the tragedy of suicide increased for both Europe and Canada and has really accelerated for the U.S. and continues to accelerate to today, especially among teens and middle-aged Americans. But David, maybe it seems obvious to point this out. Like, oh, you know, people lost their jobs. They lost their savings. And we're supposed to be surprised that suicide increased and that health declined. Makes sense to me. But the point of all this is to not just complain about the economy had a downturn and people suffered. The point is to make clear that this was not an accident. Not all of us were just huddled together as a nation, as a people, as a global community. We weren't just trying to just weather the storm that came out of left field and caught us all unaware. No, this was a direct result of an economy that undermined its own foundation. An economy that, as a rule, seeks to destroy everything that supports it. And as these studies into health make clear, an economy that is literally killing us. Our economy is not resilient. It is not robust, but rather it stretches and thins out a global infrastructure to its most vulnerable state, forcing each part of the machine to specialize and mold to a uniformity that benefits this global machine as opposed to allowing local economies to adapt to local needs. And when you make the world vulnerable and when you take away its foundation, it's not an accident when things crash and burn. It's inevitable. People suffer, but those who sit at the top of the machine continue to benefit. They are not tied to local conditions. They can move freely to wherever the money flows. But we're here talking about the recession, about the failures of the economy in that situation, and we've recovered since then, right? The stock market's up, the economy's booming, unemployment is down, at least we're led to believe all these things. But in reality, most of that growth has not gone to most of us. 1% of the population, the richest top 1%, have captured 85% of all income growth following 2008 crisis. 
10% of Americans own 83% of the stock market. This is that inequality that we're talking about, the things that prevent the upward mobility that is the American dream that the idea of economic freedom in the United States is built upon. And as time goes on, as this growth is captured more and more by a smaller and smaller group of people, more people are waking up and realizing that this growth, that this dream that was sold to all of us is just a lie. That it was always designed to take advantage of us, to try and trick us into contributing to this system that is working against the majority of us. And even beyond the economic component of this, the ability to pay our rent, to buy food, well, it turns out the work that we have to do for all of this itself is killing us. So going beyond just this specific economic downturn, you're saying that the work we're actually doing day to day is itself causing problems. Exactly. And I'm not just talking about the rising CO2 in these office buildings. Let's take a look at this, okay? So in 2016, the Trust for America's Health and the Wellbeing Trust released a report showing that deaths attributed to alcohol, drugs, and suicide have increased by 11% over the previous year. That's 14,000 more deaths for a total of 142,000 people. And in that same time, deaths by opioids doubled in a single year. And over the past 10 years, deaths by alcohol have gone up 40%. And much of this, other reports found, is because of the workplace itself. A professor of organizational behavior at Stanford published a book a couple months ago that examines the health impacts of modern work culture. And it's really a simple premise. The biggest health care costs we have come from chronic disease, at least in the U.S. That's 75% of our health care bill. And studies show that the biggest driver of chronic disease is stress. And what is the cause of the most stress in the majority of people's lives? Well, it's the workplace. That's right. And it may be obvious to most of us here, and that we don't need researchers to prove this for us, but most Americans and most people in the world hate their jobs. According to a global 142 country study, Gallup found that only 13% of employees around the world actually engage with their work. In the United States, it's slightly higher at 29%, but that still means 71% of people in the US and Canada are totally not engaged with their work in any meaningful way. People don't trust their managers. Job satisfaction is plummeting. Less and less of us have health insurance and pension programs. <laughs> we already know that that's not a thing that happens anymore. And like we've mentioned before, people work more than ever before. This strains their family life, their personal free time, and has a toll on their mental health. And beyond all that, people are just insecure about their future because of their work. The author makes this case that poor workplace conditions have an enormous cost to businesses' bottom line. Again, this is that economic argument here, because apparently we can't discuss how much life sucks without justifying it in terms of dollar amounts. I'm not shedding any tears over any lost profits for businesses. <laughs> yeah, but this is what catches people's attention, and this is how you get funding for your, your studies, I guess. But people miss work because of this stress. In one survey, 7% of people were hospitalized at one point because of workplace-related stress. Actually, David, uh, this actually happened to me. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, so we always think that these types of things happen to other people. We're young, we're healthy, whatever. But Well, for a second, for the, for the benefit of the viewers who cannot see Daniel, I have never seen Daniel. Daniel is a, a healthy young guy. He's fit. He, he does jujitsu. He's like, we, we, we all want to look like Daniel. He, this is not the type of person you would guess is going to be damaged by workplace stress or have to go to the hospital or something from this. Well, I'm just preparing for that nudist colony that you alluded to in our fashion episode. Well, you're getting the head start on us. This is actually a little embarrassing, but I graduated college with a business degree and I thought my purpose in life was to go out and make a lot of money. That's what everyone else was doing. That's what I was taught to do in school. 
And so that's what I thought I had to do, despite not really being sure about my future, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And so I was working a commission job and I was so stressed. I just wasn't happy. I felt like I was living a life that really wasn't my choice, but I just had to do it anyway. I had to figure out how to make it work. And one night I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and my chest was just on fire. I'd, I'd never been in this kind of pain before. I didn't know what it was. I thought that I was having a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what a heart attack feels like, but I just, I didn't know. I thought it was very serious. So I didn't order an ambulance because I was embarrassed. So uh, I, I went downstairs, I got in my car and I drove myself to the hospital. I went into the emergency room. I stayed there for a couple of hours because they were busy before someone finally could see me. And it turns out I just had acid reflux. <laughs> the doctor told me it's common among people who experience stress. And I just didn't know what it was because it was all in my chest. And the doctor gave me a prescription for some pills that were supposed to help with it. But I never got them filled because I realized this is not okay. It's not okay for me to live like this, to be so stressed that I'm literally waking up in the middle of the night thinking I have to go to the hospital. So I think that was a real turning point in my life when I had to ask myself, what am I doing? Does this make sense? Does it make sense to feel this much anxiety over just trying to make money and, and be successful in life? And I guess I had the luxury of kind of turning my life into another direction that many people don't have. But yeah, that happened to me. That's the most gripping story about acid reflux I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, I joke, but that really is a great single anecdote of how these workplace uh, scenarios can have direct health impacts on us as individuals. And I had actually completely forgotten that it happened until I read that statistics of people being hospitalized because of stress. And I was like, and I thought that's exaggerated. I don't see how that could possibly happen to someone. And I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> you're just a statistic, Daniel. Yeah, I am the 7%. But yeah, so anyway, the argument that author makes is that all these things add up to enormous losses for companies. And it is a great illustration of what I said earlier about an economy that undermines its foundation and destroys that which it depends on. You can't have a company without workers. And those workers do better and have greater long-term productivity when they are happy, healthy, educated, and satisfied. But our economy doesn't care about the long-term. It says, hey, I can make more profit right now by squeezing my workers and forcing them to work longer, by paying less for their education, by disregarding their needs, both socially, emotionally. And it disregards the fact that there's a cost associated with that that adds up, whether that's in the form of our rising national health care cost that has exploded from chronic disease, or whether that's just a decline in worker productivity. And I just want to carry one final stat in here in this section, and, and maybe this would have fit better earlier, but to remember that these stresses of the workplace, the impacts brought by poverty, don't just affect the workers themselves, but also their families. The BBC did a study, uh, it's called America First, with a question mark at the end, that analyzes some of the issues actually that we're talking about in this show. It's real interesting, I would recommend checking it out. But one of the things they looked at was inner city youth. These children growing up in these major American cities, in New York, in Atlanta, in L.A. And researchers began looking at these children. Uh, they looked at them psychologically. How do they deal with growing up in these environments? And what they found is that they have enormous amounts of PTSD growing up in the situations. So to put this in perspective, the average soldier who goes to combat will come back and 10 to 20 percent of them will suffer from PTSD. 
which is a huge amount. And it's a, it's a, a tragedy that the Veterans Administration and the government as a whole just aren't dealing with in a responsible way. But the PTSD incidence for these children who are just growing up in these poor areas is 40 to 50 percent. Four times the more than double of what is coming back from soldiers who saw combat across the world. And this affects the rest of their lives. It affects them developmentally. It affects them socially. It affects them emotionally. Their future is damaged, is hurt, is cut short by growing up in these unfortunate situations brought on by these workplace problems, these economic problems that we're discussing here. It's half of a whole generation who have this terrible emotional problem that they'll have to deal with the rest of their life. And who is that a failing of? It's a failing of the system that we have right now. Well, speaking of those affected by situations that resemble battlefields and violence, violence itself has intensified over the past few years all over the world. And it has led to a huge increase in the number of people that are dying each year from armed conflict. We are trained to believe that we live in the most peaceful time of history. Yet the London International Institute for Strategic Studies shows us that between 2008 and 2014, the annual deaths from this armed conflict increased by 220% to 180,000 fatalities in 2014 alone. But that's just deaths of people involved in violence. The World Bank estimates 1.2 billion people. Yes, that's 20% of the global population. 1.2 billion people are impacted by violence around the world. And that London study, it found that over 50 million people were displaced from their homes in 2013. And to put those numbers in perspective, because the population has grown so much, 1.2 billion people displaced or affected by violence is about the same as what happened during World War I, and not too dissimilar from World War II, which was the largest conflict in human history. And this is during a time that we claim relative peace. And to be fair, that most peaceful time in history meme that we hear so much, it was true around the year 2000, but uh, since then, violence has only been increasing. More and more people have been involved in conflicts, and the number of lives lost and the number of direct conflicts has only climbed since then. And the short-term consequences of being displaced by this violence, it translates into tragic long-term impacts, like the erosion of education and healthcare for these people, diminished economic development, and the dissipation of government services that can help people in times of need. And it's not just these places, these developing nations that are responsible for this violence. For example, the United States is directly or indirectly responsible for the deaths of 20 to 30 million people since the end of World War II. The vast majority of that being Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, but also the many civil wars and coups the United States has directly created in order to further its diplomatic and economic interests over the past seven decades. To put those numbers in perspective, that's about the same amount of people that Stalin was claimed to have killed. Or, to something more modern, that's a 9-11 every two and a half days for 70 years. Well, when you put it that way, David, it really raises the question of who is good or evil in this world and, and who determines that. I was certainly very surprised to learn about all this armed conflict going on around the world, and especially the involvement the U.S. may or may not have had in this. Because, again, we are told that we live in a time of peace and that specifically the United States is this force of good around the world. And the fact that we use our military around the world is seen as something almost benevolent. We're over there supporting other people. We're helping other people. We're building economies up. But the death toll is something that's really hard to ignore in that context. 
And so it really begs the question, why is there so much conflict? Why is the conflict getting worse? This is a conversation that could, again, be its own episode, a philosophical discussion over drinks. But I think it is something just important to briefly touch on. And, and of course, that is because war is a critical component of modern economy all around the world, not just the United States. So let's look at Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, which is trumped up on WMDs that didn't actually exist. They were just made up in order to get us involved. And the popular conception has always been, oh, of course, we went there to get the oil, right? That's what everybody says. And, and people acknowledge that and they say, yeah, this is about the economics of oil. But in reality, it wasn't even really so much about oil. We didn't take that much oil out of it. We didn't seize control of all these uh, oil fields. But what we did do is spend trillions of dollars on defense contractors, mostly owned by the people in power that created this war. War is about selling arms. This is a critical component of a lot of economies, the United States, Russia, Israel. These are all major arms dealers, and they test these arms in these conflicts and sell them to countries around the world. But even beyond that, these wars are about furthering economic interests. And when you said that, David, that war is necessary to our economy, I think that really puts all the conflict around the world into perspective. It's not just an unfortunate consequence that we're just trying to deal with. It is a direct result of our need to support a global economic infrastructure that we can depend on. And the only way to create a global empire is by making other countries totally dependent on you through force. And I agree with you that this is a, probably a topic for another episode, but there is an irony here and that we're trying to create a stable economy that we can depend on for oil, that we can depend on for resources, that we can import our needs from other countries around the world. But that's actually putting us at great national risk. Our national security itself is compromised by our dependence on a global infrastructure. It means that we can't depend on our own land to support us. We can't depend on our own energy sources. And can a country truly be secure when it can't even sustain its own people with its own land? And of course, the root of all of this is that we have lived beyond our means, not just in the violence that we push around the world, but also in the violence we inflict on the environment itself. We keep coming back to this point again and again that we are unsustainable. The success and wealth of our modern life that Steven Pinker talks about as the greatest time in human history is built on the debt of the environment and the blood of people around the world. The violence is hidden, out of sight, out of mind, or push to the future. That means conflicts around the world. That means sweatshops in developing nations. That means climate catastrophes coming just decades or centuries in the future. That means cities eventually underwater. That means billions of climate refugees, according to the UN, in just a few decades. We have destroyed the world. We have destroyed the lives of hundreds of millions of billions of people in order to create this, quote, best time in human history. And our wealth, our flights, our toilets, our plumbing, the things that allow us to live as demigods, as Daniel mentioned in the beginning of this episode, will eventually all have blood on them. That's the suffering of people who built them, the violence we push out of sight and out of mind, and once again, the death and misery that is coming in the future as we have to pay for our environmental consequences. You know what I think is so brilliant in an evil way about the propaganda system that we grow up in? That is, if we are here in the United States or another Western empire, the brilliance is that there's so much violence and so much destruction, yet we've become so disconnected, we hardly even notice the economy's destructive nature, and we can actually believe that we live in the best of times. 
I mean, really, how can we have become so disconnected that we just take it for granted that slavery is normal or somehow, you know, just business as usual? There are 40 million slaves around the world right now. And I was reading an article by someone who was pointing out this problem of slavery around the world. And even this author, who is clearly aware of this issue, points out that despite the scope of this exploitation, hey, we should be proud of companies that are making public statements on the issue. And these companies are shining examples of the positive progress that our economy is making. So take Target, for example. The company has stated it will attempt to reduce forced labor in its business over the next few years. And this is praised like they're some great company. Wait, I, I, I just want to stop one second and again, reinforce the total absurdity of that statement. We're going to reduce our dependence on forced labor and especially that PR word there, forced labor, because it sounds really bad when you say we're trying to cut down on how much slavery we have in our supply chains. Right. Slaves are literally being used to run their business and we're supposed to be happy that they're supposedly realizing this for the first time. We're supposed to empathize with the assumption that your business is just so complex, it's so difficult, that it's just so hard to keep slaves out of that process. Two other companies, Nestle and Mars, well, as a result of pressure from Greenpeace, they made announcements that they will try to reduce human rights abuse and illegal practices in their pet food supply chains, specifically in trans shipping practices where ships transfer cargo and human labor in open waters where they can't be tracked. Well, this goes back to what you said in our plastics episode, David, that we have incentivized companies to be ignorant, or at least feign ignorance. We've allowed them to go about their business with reckless disregard for basic human dignity. And only when they've been caught doing something destructive do they say, oops, we, uh, well, we didn't know we relied on slaves. Uh, we'll try to be better. And then we applaud them and treat them like great companies. We have been duped into thinking that we can eliminate things like slavery and exploitation by encouraging business to adopt better policies without even questioning whether slaves and exploitation are necessary components to business as usual. We should be asking that question. We should question business as usual. Once again, I just want to drive in that one point Daniel had is that there are more slaves now than ever before in human history. This is something we've talked about before in previous episodes. People are still sold in open-air markets. Wealthy countries like Qatar, building the World Cup right now, are doing that with slave labor. Even here in the United States, a place where we think this can't possibly exist, except maybe out of the human trafficking and, and sex slave industries, which we are actively fighting a war on and accidentally persecuting sex workers at the same time, which again, is, is another episode by itself. But here in the United States, there are massive fishing fleets off the coast of Hawaii, staffed entirely by slaves. They catch fish, bring it to ports in Hawaii, and then we eat it all across the country. The AP did a Pulitzer Prize-winning report on this in 2016, and almost nothing has been done about this issue. We eat food from slaves. Here, in Hawaii, in the United States, once again, this violence is pushed out of sight, out of mind, and it's what enables our modern lifestyle. We've talked before about how nothing is profitable when you take into account the environmental externalities and cost of the damage that we do. Well, it's even more so when you calculate in the human suffering we inflict on individuals in order to live the life that we do. This wealth, this luxurious lifestyle that we have come to know in the West is built once again on this human suffering, on these environmental externalities. And because we can't quantify these things, because we can't quantify what it means to be a slave, what it means to work for a dollar a day, what it means to be taken away from your family, locked up in a boat, and made to capture fish 
all day long. This type of stuff, it can't be quantified, and so we can't put a cost to it. So things are profitable. But if we tried to calculate this in, well, the measure of human suffering in order to create this life, it's just not worth it. And the system that enables this, well, that's not worth it either. Now here, as we come to the end of this episode, regular listeners of the show are expecting the what can we do section. But in reality, the what can we do is this show. Every episode where we dive deep into these specific issues, where we look at similar components of this global systemic problems, these are the what can we do's. Because this problem is so great involving every single part of our life that we can't just look at it from here, from the top and say, well, we just need to tear it all down and restart. It's not practical. It's too much to do. So by looking at all these specific examples, topics, understanding them, sharing them, we hope that we can start making a difference. Let me quote Wendell Berry real quick, a fan of this show, sent us some material on Wendell Berry. I've been reading up about him. And he says, quote, it is unrealistic to expect a bad economy to try to become a good one. Then we must go to work to build a good economy, end quote. And so the purpose of bringing up all these bad news, like you mentioned, David, the purpose of these shows is not just to complain. It's to realize that these bad things have a cause. They aren't just accidents. The world we live in did not evolve this way. The economic and political structures that we were born into were not gradual processes arising logically out of incremental steps. Our economy was built through force and violence, backed by the extraction of massive amounts of energy. We are taught to believe that this is the natural way to organize the world. But at every step of the way, the development of our economic structures were met with resistance and struggle as those our economy exploits and enslaved tried to keep control of their land and their resources. There are many different ways to organize a society, but we are not going to get that if we keep believing that everything is great and that if we just sit patiently, all our problems will be solved by an ever-progressing economy and technological innovation. Our societal problems are not going to be solved by the same forces that created them in the first place. Our economy will not improve people's health. It's killing us. It will not solve inequality. Inequality is the goal. It will not reduce war. War is how global infrastructure is held in place. But that's not to say that we don't believe a better world is possible. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talk about here or look at the many many stats and sources we pulled for this episode. You can find all that information and much more, as well as a full transcript of this show on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you can support us by sharing us with a friend and giving us a review. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts, positive or negative, and we'll read it. You can also find us on your favorite social network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we're taking a look at a very broken technological and judicial system, and we really hope you'll tune in for that one. Until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.